Well, let's open our Bibles once more to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. We'll read our text again for this series. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." Well, today is the final lesson in this series on the Great Commission. And if the Lord Jesus has called you to faith in Him, if you have responded to Him in obedience and submission, then you are prepared to make disciples. If you are fully convinced of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus and are dedicated to submitting yourself before Him, recognizing His authority, then you are authorized to make disciples. If you, having been set free from your sin, and you are going, you are walking, you're walking by the Spirit, and you are committed to listening to the words of Jesus and His commands for you, then you are commissioned to make disciples disciples. But having been prepared, authorized, and commissioned, the question now remains, are you dedicated to making disciples? If the Lord Jesus has saved you, if He has given you authority, if He has given you a co-mission, a joint mission, then how can you be anything but dedicated to making disciples. Well, maybe you're asking the question, how do I do it? How do I do this? Well, though it should be no surprise for us, for some reason, we are continually surprised when the Word of God gives us the answer. And the answer to the question, how do I make disciples? Well, it's found here in these two verses. Verses 19 and 20 of our text. I think perhaps one reason why this can be so surprising is that we often expect to find answers that are more complex, that are more dramatic. I think we're often like Naaman in that regard, where we expect the prophet to come out and to to wave his hands over the spot and cure us of our leprosy. But... The fact of the matter is, quite often instead, he says, just go wash in the river. So the answer to the question, how do I make disciples, is found in going, in baptizing, in teaching. It really is that simple. But don't let the simplicity anger you like it did Naaman. Don't, because even though this is a simple task... 
It's an impossible task. But don't let that discourage you. For, for not only is the answer to the question found here in these basic, simple answers, but there is also found here added bonus, shall we say. There's a hidden gem here. And it's hiding in plain sight. There is a promise for an equipping to accomplish this great commission, and that is found in residing. So, as we last week considered the phrase, go therefore and make disciples, we did note one particular aspect of this going, and that is that going is a lifestyle. It's an expectation. It is something of which is a part of your being, your regular, everyday thinking, speaking, acting, your routine. And even as we looked at the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 and, and the words that Jesus spoke right before the ascension in Acts 1, uh, they teach us that the going, it begins at home. It begins in Jerusalem. It begins with yourself. And in the fact that it begins at home, that isn't something that looks sexy. Okay? You're not going to look cool doing this. When you're at home, you're in your pajamas. You are in your mud boots. You're with hair unbrushed. Your teeth are sometimes unbrushed. You're not looking all put together. You're not going to look cool cleaning your kids or your neighbors' bodily fluids. It's not the most exciting thing in the world to to do that, is it? No. But if you do it for the glory of God, if you do it faithfully, if you do it evangelistically, if you do it truly, it will have an impact. And if it doesn't impact your child, if it doesn't impact your neighbor, it will most assuredly strike home to your heart. It will have an impact upon you. And the Lord whom you serve... He will see what you do in private and He will reward you. Perhaps, oftentimes, disciple-making hurts and it's messy. Indeed, Paul said, I die daily. I die daily. But the making of disciples shouldn't just be confined to your home. It should extend to as far as the realm of your influence extends. It should extend to wherever you go or whatever God calls you to do, whether that's a vocation, whether that's a role, whether that's a temporary excursion, whether that's a permanent expedition. It should go with you. Some... Some are tent makers. Some are lawyers. Some are, are, are apprentices. Some are royalty, heads of state. Some are soldiers. Some are financiers. Some are fishermen and tax collectors and zealots. But whatever the position, wherever the location, the mission is the same. It's the same continual mission to go and make disciples of all the nations. 
This mission, this directive is applicable to all echelons. Whether you are an individual, whether you are a family, a local church, or whether you are the global church, all disciples receive this command. And the command isn't just to go. It isn't simply to make disciples. It is to make disciples of all the nations. Now when the text says all nations, the word for nations is ethnos. It means race or tribe. It essentially means all people groups. And it, it comes from the, the root word etho or etho. And that has a, a connotation. It, it denotes something or, or someone that is of the same habit or custom. And this helps us to understand that why one large factor in separating peoples is their language. It's already been brought up this morning about language. That is one of the greatest divisions among men is language. The language barrier. Well, one of the reasons that this separates people is, is because language isn't just other words. In fact, when you learn a new or a different language, you aren't just learning another way of speaking. You aren't just learning new words. You are learning a different type of thinking. You are learning a different culture. That is why translation is so challenging. So what we have here, when Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, He is returning us back to Genesis chapter 10 and the table of nations that came out of the demolition of the Tower of Babel. We are to make disciples of all of these nations. Everyone. The previous restriction that... that said to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, that's lifted. That is now lifted. And the message goes forth first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. God's kingdom is larger than Israel. It is universal. The word ethnos or nations is to be distinguished from another word that is used in the Scripture that's typically translated kingdom, and that is basilia. So when it says, make disciples of all the nations, what it's saying is that we ought to make disciples from individual people within all of those nations. Not, not that all kingdoms become disciples of Christ. Because I don't think that we can baptize a kingdom. No, no nor are nations, quote-unquote, Christian. But also notice one other little note here, that even though the Lord Jesus has authority in heaven and on earth, we aren't instructed or equipped to engage those under the earth or above the earth, those in the heavens. We are only tasked with making disciples of those on the earth. 
of those who are living, those who are in the here and the now. What we find in verses 19 and 20 is the mission of the Holy Catholic Church. That means the universal church, the global church, the historical church. And a single independent believer, a single independent congregation is in no way capable of fulfilling this mission. There simply isn't enough time, personnel, or resources to accomplish this task. Men die. Churches fade away. So what do we do with this then? Do we just give up? Pull out the rod and go fishing? No, of course not. It's still Christ's mission. And and as the bride of Christ as we are connected to Him in marriage, as being in submission to Him, it is therefore our mission. It is and must be my mission. So what we ought we to do? What ought we to do? We are to take this overarching mission and personalize it. Make it for you. Make it for your family. Make it for your church. Personalize this. Here, here's an example. Just insert your name here. The blank family, whatever. Your family goes to North Carolina in order to camp in the mountains. That's your mission. Your family goes to North Carolina to camp in the mountains. Now, the six-year-old doesn't say, I can't possibly do that job. I can't drive a car. How am I supposed to get to North Carolina? No. Each member of the family has age-appropriate tasks, has space or place-appropriate tasks, subtasks to accomplish this main mission of going to North Carolina and camping. All of these join together to get the family to the campsite in North Carolina. The father prepares the vehicle. He plans the route. The mother prepares the food and the clothing. The sons inventory the tent and the camping supplies while the girls pack the sleeping bags and the the hygiene items. Each member has a job. Each member has a task. They're all interrelated and they all support the mission. Each individual and each individual congregation is exactly the same way. It is ridiculous for a church in Tullahoma, Tennessee to have as their primary objective to make disciples in Hong Kong. A church is a church in a place and is expected to fulfill Christ's mission to her in that place and at that time. Churches ought to be local. They ought to be active in their area. And this looks different in 1600 London than it does in 1800 Sri Lanka in 2000 Backwoods, Kentucky. It looks different. So how do we figure out then? How do we discern? How do we figure out how a specific congregation fulfills the Great Commission? And I think it really is pretty simple. Just replace all the nations with where the church is located. Start there. 
Start there. Take the various Great Commission passages, or the last words of Jesus passages. Matthew 28 is one. Uh, If you consider Mark 16, Mark 16 is another. And Acts 1. You take these three, you you form them together into a medley and apply it. Let me give you an example. This is exactly what I did. When I'm looking at this passage, I said, if this is the mission of the church, if I am a part of the bride of Christ, if this is the, the church's mission, the bride's mission, then I as an individual, it must be my mission. So what is my mission? I had to define it. And so I wrote down, Philip preaches, witnesses, and makes disciples in the Petersburg area. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. And I think that that you can narrow it down further or broaden it up greater as needed. You You can go on my street, in my neighborhood, in my community, in my city, in my state, etc. Think of it in the terms of Acts 1.8, that it's a progressive spread outward. Start where you are and then move outwards from there. One caveat to this is that this does not mean that you cannot or you should not have simultaneous operations occurring. For instance, a church very well can support and facilitate um, missionaries in Bangladesh, in Mexico, in Iran, in Haiti, in North Dakota, in North New York City, in the state capital, in your hometown, all at the same time. They can. But rarely do they all start there. They can't start there. You have to start somewhere. And that somewhere needs to be found locally. Each one of us here has friends, has family members, have co-workers, has acquaintances from other countries. Every one of us does, I guarantee it, with different cultures. What if, what if you were dedicated to this mission? What if God blessed and honored your obedience to this mission? By saving these people. Listen, God doesn't save or sanctify reluctantly. No. He is desirous to do so. It is His will to do so. It's why Christ died on the cross. Listen, He is all in. He's all in. Are you? Am I? How does the local body of believers fulfill this mandate? One professor at the Master Seminary said this, and I think he said it well. How can we, in local churches, see God leading the day-by-day operation of His church in a tangible way? The first way is through His Word. The second way is through the giftedness of people He has sovereignly given to each local church. The constant in each church will be His Word. That which makes the ministry of each church unique will be the mix of gifted people 
whom God gives to the church. The gifted people whom God has sent will be the basis for determining His plan for the church. Finding God's design for each local church forces the leadership to do three things. Study Scripture, prayer, and become closely acquainted with God's sheep. Isn't that interesting? I think that we have heard those three things before. And in fact, I think that's precisely what the Scripture teaches about the church in general and church leadership in specific. For it says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, the apostles' doctrine, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. We will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Now, remember also that Jesus said very explicitly and very clearly just a few chapters back in Matthew 24, verse 14, He said, "...the gospel, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. The euangelion of the basilia shall be preached to the ethnos. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to all the nations. And then the end will come. All the nations shall come before Him and be separated and be judged." This judgment will be just because before the end, they will all have heard the gospel. To be involved in fulfilling the Great Commission is to be concerned with justice. The end will not come. It will not come until the gospel is preached to all the nations. Listen, we often use 2 Peter 3 to say that God is patient. He is patient about returning again so that all the elect will come in repentance and be saved. And that's true. That is accurate. He is a patient God waiting, waiting for people to repent. But I think He's also patient with those who have already come to repentance and are saved. I think He's patient with you and me because of looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord we're dragging our feet and we're looking in the dirt and we can't rightly say Amen, come Lord Jesus if we don't act like He will if we aren't doing this then either we don't believe the gospel or we're stingy with it And given the condemnation that Christ had for the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, I think the latter is far worse than the former. So again, we're asking the question, how do I or we make disciples? The second aspect of this answer, it lies in baptism. The word is baptizo. It's a transliteration from the Greek. And and its meaning is to, to fully submerge, to immerse. 
Now, I understand that there's difference in opinions on the modes of baptism. And of course, I'm biased, and so are you. But our conviction is based upon the gospel itself. It's an act performed to an individual that, that uh, symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the union of the saved to the Savior. The depiction of the, of, the, of the individual's complete submission to God, his desire to be fully immersed in God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. But this text isn't focused on mode, but rather on authority, identity, and unity. He says, Go therefore make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In the name of. To do something in the name of someone is to do so by their authority, with their permission. And, and we've already seen the great emphasis that was placed upon the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to make disciples of all the nations and to baptize them all with all the authority of the Godhead. This is an act that declares that, that Christ is Lord, that God is sovereign, that the Spirit is ruler. It's an act that declares that with the authority of all the Godhead. Secondly, it's identity. And a person's name is critical to their identity. One of the primary features, one of the primary elements of information on your, on your driver's license, on your identification card, is your name. And as we have seen, a disciple is one who is identified with Christ. He's identified with Him. And this, this act of baptism, is the, it's the official ceremony, if you will, it, that, um, in which this, this declaration, this profession of association, it's made public. Your old identity has been erased. You've got a new ID card. <clears throat> it's been thrown away. It has died. You are raised a new man. You have a new identity. It is, as Sinclair Ferguson says, baptism is essentially a naming ceremony. <clears throat> this is an act that symbolizes and declares that which defines you. This is an act that says, I have a new name. I have a new name. Finally, <clears throat> there's unity. And there is the emphasis in this passage, a very strong emphasis upon unity, of entirety, of completeness. He says, <clears throat> all authority, all disciples, that's implied, all nations, all of the Godhead, all commands, all times. A completeness, a unity. And this shows us that Jesus doesn't have plans apart from the Father. He isn't working unilaterally without the application of the Spirit. This is a unified mission. Why, baptize, why is baptism, why is it applicable to every believer? 
Why do we baptize in the name of the Trinity? I want a passage from you from John 17. Verse 20, Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you have loved me. This is an act in which not only does the believer rejoice in his union to Christ, but it's an act in which God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all in unity declare, He's mine, that one. Authority, identity, and unity. And disciple making must include this essential element of baptism. Why? Because scripturally speaking, baptism always immediately follows conversion. It marks the entrance into the kingdom. It indicates a heart in submission. It declares that the old man is in dismission. And it is confirmation that that God has decommissioned that dismissed old man and recommissioned a new man. That's why it is critical and essential. How do we make disciples? By going, baptizing, and by teaching. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now last week we, we saw how the primary verb in this passage is matheteu. That word which is most commonly translated make disciples. And in the King James it's translated teach Well, here in verse 20, we have this word again, teaching. But it's not matheteu, it's didasco. It's didactic. Simply means teach. Teach. Why, God, do I need to teach your followers? If they're your disciples, if they're following you, why, why do I need to teach them? Well, this aspect of the command, teach... Uh, this command to make disciples, it presupposes something. It presupposes that man is naturally ignorant of how to love and obey God. Creation only gives us limited information about who God is and what He has done. It does teach us some things. It does give us information, but it's limited information. And the less that we know about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater our misconception will be about who we are, why we are here, and what we ought to be doing. Remember that in times past, God overlooked this ignorance. But not now. Now He commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because He has furnished proof 
by raising a man from the dead, the man Christ Jesus. That time of ignorance is gone. This is why Genesis 1.1 begins by introducing God to us. It doesn't say in the beginning, man. We don't need to be introduced to ourselves. It says in the beginning, God. We need to be introduced to Him. The very first question that needs to be answered is, Who is God? This necessity of teaching, it explains why Jesus says that he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He will find it. He's looking for it. In knowing Christ, in seeking to learn of Him, to be taught by Him, to receive answers from Him, you learn about yourself. You find answers about who you are. Do you want to know who you are? Do you want to know why you're here? What you ought to be doing? Are you aching to know what God wants you to do? You need to be taught. You need to learn everything that Christ has commanded. You have need that someone teach you. Now a person can be self-taught in some areas, but from what I'm gathering in this text, that doesn't make the list. For when it comes to spiritual matters, the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. Do you remember that text that says they're always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth? How can, I, how can I understand unless someone show me? We need to be taught. And there's two ways set forth here in which disciples are taught. The first is by other disciples. That's the first method that's that introduced to us. It's the first one that's mentioned. Well, notice that this teaching isn't just a, a me and God teaching. Now, it certainly doesn't preclude, it doesn't exclude uh, personal devotion, personal alone time, Bible study, devotion, meditation, prayer. It doesn't exclude that. But the emphasis here is on disciples teaching and discipling other disciples. And don't be misled into thinking that this just applies to baby Christians. No, there will always be someone who is farther along in life, in their Christian walk, than you are. And this text, in this text, it is incumbent upon the greater to teach the lesser. This isn't saying that it's wrong for one to seek discipling, to, to seek after learning and teaching. But the weight is placed upon the teacher, disciple. Just, just think of the term in Ephesians 4, pastor, teacher. That whole context, it, it brings to bear upon the quote-unquote greater, those who are a little bit farther along. Or consider the passage, how will they hear without a preacher? How will they hear? Think about the relationship from of father to son. The father teaches the son. It's natural. It's normal. It's how it ought to be. And here is where we truly begin to see the co-nature of this mission. He is trusting us to teach others, to teach His other children. 
How amazing is that? How amazing is it? Who am I that God would entrust His living oracles to me to impart them, to teach them to others into my feeble hands? Really? What an amazing thing to consider. But consider something else here. Every teacher knows that the teacher always learns more than the student. So in giving this command for disciples to teach other disciples, Jesus is providing the means for them both to learn more of Him. Wow! Now I have a very practical and a very personal example for us here. Briefly turn to Titus chapter 2. Here the Apostle Paul is teaching his protege Titus in how to be a pastor and how he ought to teach and how he ought to disciple his congregation. And I just want to take one example from this book. We're going to look at Titus chapter 2 verses 3 through 5. He says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. Now, notice particularly that the older women ought to teach the younger women. And one thing that we learn from this is that there is an assumption that that the, the diversity, the demographic within the assembly ought to be broad. It's not narrow. It at least includes men and women, older and younger. But not only is the demographic wide, is it broad, but the relationships are such, the community is so close that the relationships in the community go so deep And so personal, they get into very intimate problems. That's how tight this community is supposed to be. And now another thing to recognize here is that just because women are female, and listen up you newly married guys, just because women are female doesn't automatically mean that they know how to be mothers and wives. Now, years ago, I really needed someone to point these verses out to me. Because the text says, older women are to teach and to encourage the younger women how to love their husbands and their children. Apparently, husbands and fathers are ill-equipped for this role. Now, we are to teach our wives and our children, men. We are to do that. But there is something here that is uniquely given to older women. And because the church failed in this area, because I failed in this area, my wife, my marriage, my family, and even the church herself unnecessarily suffered for it. We need to be taught by one another. We need to be taught by one another. And do you remember when I said last week that when the church isn't busy in her domain... 
It doesn't stay there. The idleness doesn't remain there. It extends further. So disciples teach other disciples. The second way in which disciples are taught is by the Spirit Himself, by the Holy Spirit. Do you see that in that last verse? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now it's implied, but Jesus told His disciples that He would send another helper. John chapter 16, He says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are Mine. Therefore I said that He takes of Mine and will disclose it to you. Did you, did you hear Jesus' words here? He said He had a whole lot more things that He wanted to teach Him, but they weren't ready for Him yet. They needed to wait. They needed to grow. They needed to mature a little bit longer, a little bit more. He wanted to teach him. And he said, the Spirit will disclose the information that you need. He will give it to you. That which you need to know, He will reveal it. He will illuminate it. He will show you. He will declare it. He will teach it. He will teach it. And that's precisely what Paul said in Corinthians when he said, those taught by the Spirit. The more that a baptized believer is taught of Christ and and is taught of Christ's will, then the more he will understand his Master and Savior. But the more that we know of our Master and our Savior, the more that we know of Christ, of who God is and what He has done, we also know more about who we are and what we have done. Because we will also come to know more of our own deficiencies of our own sinful tendencies, of our own bad habits. And this creates an internal atmosphere inside the believer that is more and more pure, yet more and more pained by sin, whether it's your own or someone else's. For the Holy Spirit is the teacher in residence, And He comes to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And this leads us to our final point, residing. Residing. How do we make disciples? By going, baptizing, teaching, and residing. In order to love and obey God more, in all areas, we must be constantly learning We must be constantly being taught of Him. Now it's true that Jesus said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. Abide in Me. Reside in Me. But the emphasis here in Matthew 28.20 is not on the believer residing in Christ, but rather Christ 
residing in the believer. And that is one of the great, great mysteries of the Scriptures. How, how in the world, how can it be that the God who does not dwell in temples made with hands, who fills the highest heavens, whom the heavens cannot contain Him, whom He wraps about as a, as a robe, how can He reside within the heart of a human? How can the highest heavens not contain Him, and yet He be Emmanuel, God with us? It truly is something that was previously mysterious. It was hidden, but it is now revealed. But even in the revelation of this truth, it's incomprehensible. And then again, so is God. God is bigger than you and I. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And that actually is a very, very good thing. It's an encouraging thing. Because if we worshiped a God that we could fully wrap our minds around, if we could completely comprehend Him, then we would be elevated over Him or at least equal to Him. But that is not the case because the ever-present living One, this God who is always with us, is greater than us. And this is a statement here of our finiteness, of our finite knowledge and of His omniscience. His all-knowing. How can we make disciples? By the knowledge of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. This is a statement of our inability and of His ability, of His omnipotence. How can we make disciples? By His power. By the power of Christ. He says, I am with you always. And this statement of Jesus teaches me that I am incapable of accomplishing this mission on my own. It's His mission of which He allows me to partake, to participate. He equips me. He trains me. He deploys me. He fights through me. But never, ever, ever should I attempt to fight Goliath absent from Him. No. This is the reason that we can have confidence in the undertaking of this task. Because Christ is with us. This ensures the success of the mission. He says, the gates of hell shall not prevail. I'm building my kingdom. Jesus ensures its success because He's with us. Because the Christ who saves fully saves finally. You and I are not lone rangers. We're not secret agents tasked with mission impossible. No, if we were to approach this task without honoring Jesus' instructions, without honoring the preparation, without recognizing Jesus' authority, without regards to His commands, to His instructions, without delighting in His presence, then this truly is an impossible mission. And more, it's more than that. It would be a suicide mission. For if Christ is not raised... We are of all men most to be pitied. But he says, I am with you always. Christ is raised. I am with you always. I will never die again. And this is a call for unceasing prayer. 
It's a call for a lifetime of prayer, for a worldview of prayer, for a lifestyle of prayer. If Jesus is always present, but He's not visible, if this is His mission in which we are engaged, then whenever you and I encounter a situation, we get in a circumstance in which our finite minds can't recall the Word of God, and we can't discern what His will is, or that is how this fits into the accomplishment of the mission, it is incumbent upon us right then to immediately stop and simply pray. Pray, God, what would you have me do? What do you want me to do here, God? How do I obey you in this circumstance? What is your will, Lord? What do you want me to say, God? Schaefer said, if a Christian does not pray, if he does not live in an attitude of prayer, then no matter what he says about his doctrine, no matter how many naughty names he calls the unbelieving, the Christian has moved over and is living in unfaith. I am with you always is a continual personal relationship with Christ. Jesus doesn't give us this mission. Wave goodbye and say, good luck. No. No. We aren't called to operate in isolation. We aren't called to operate without inspiration. We aren't called to operate without information. We aren't called to operate without identification. We are called to operate because of inscription. He has written His name on our forehead. We are called to operate because of inhabitation, because He dwells among men. Jesus is always present. He is always exercising this authority that He spoke of. He is always exercising it. How? By observing, by disciplining, by equipping, by teaching, by motivating, by helping. By comforting. Always. Well, all missions end at some point. And that day draws near. One day, this mission will be over. It will be complete. And at that time, the soldiers will be discharged and they'll return home. Home. Isn't that the place where we all long to be? It's where we can relax. We can sit in our pajamas. It's the place where our relations are. It's the place where life is lived. Home. Life isn't so much lived on the battlefield as it is endured. You're alive. Yeah, you experience things. You eat, you drink, you sleep, maybe in spurts, various quantities, various lengths, different locations, sometimes comfortable, sometimes not. But it just isn't the same when you're at home. It's not the same. You spend and are spent. Sometimes there's sleepless nights. Sometimes there's sleepless days. There's tears. There's blood. There's sweat. Now, you might have an R&R period. You might have a break. But even then, that's not home. That's not the end. 
you know you must go back. You must return to the fight. And in some ways, yeah, you do want to rest. You do want to go home. You do want to go back and be with your wives and your kids and your friends and your family and your pets and, and whatever, your, your comforts. You do. But if you are a true soldier, there is also the desire in your heart to be with your brothers in arms. You're like Uriah the Hittite, who's listed as one of David's mighty men. You're like him, who longs to be in the field with the ark of God, with the army of God, alongside the people of God, fighting for the glory of God. And Jesus' statement here, at the close of the Gospel of Matthew, tells us that while He will be with us to the end, there will be an end. And while I am certain that the message of the Gospel will be declared throughout eternity, there will be no more new disciples. That's a joy that we only get to experience here. Huh. We only get to experience that in the here and in the now. Let the eternal God worry about the past and the future. Not you and me. We should listen to the advice of a man who is over 100 now and he's worked at the same... He's still working. He worked at the same company for over 84 years. (laughs) And he says this. He says... You need to get busy with the present, not the past or the future. Here and now is what counts. So let's go to work. Imagine that coming from over a hundred-year-old. We need to take his advice. Well, as we complete this series regarding the Great Commission, let's recognize something. That the end of one thing marks the beginning of another. And for me... This scripture has been transformational. I hope that it has beginning to be transformational for you. But it marks a new beginning in my life. Where where is it leading? Where is it going to end? I don't know. But I do know something. It'll be good because it's God's will. The departure of the physical presence of Christ, it made way for the spiritual presence of His Holy Spirit. The end of the disciples' training led into the beginning of their callings. The end of the gospel record led into the acts of the apostles. For on the tale of these words, and in the power and in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these same eleven disciples they began to implement their commission. And in their going, they turned the world upside down with their baptizing and with their teaching. And the same should be true of us. Now, at least for some of us, the challenge is this. We may desire that this series continue indefinitely. Or maybe not. Maybe you'd rather not shut up. But we may, we may want to hear just one more sermon We may want to attend just one more training event. Let me gather just a little more information. Or maybe you're thinking along the lines of, I will follow Christ, but 
Well, our Lord knew this would be our tendency. He knew that we would be hesitant here. And so very briefly, I want us to consider what Jesus said to His followers on the eve of His sending out the 70. Turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, we're going to begin in verse 57. Read through the rest of the chapter. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, We'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. And He said to another, Follow Me. But He said, Lord, permit Me first to go and bury My Father. But He said to them, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit Me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now Jesus is anticipating the objections to this mission. And he hits us full in the face. He stabs us right in the heart. And essentially he says that that many will reject the call to discipleship. Or they will reject the call for disciple making because of three things. Because of discomfort because of duty, because of a discussion. Discomfort, that's indicated by the first man. And this attitude is is that which is seeking a, a sexy or a glamorous ideal. It's devoid of reality. It's the Hollywood version. It's the Hollywood approach. It's an emotional response without knowledge. It's show muscle instead of go muscle. This is a rejection because it doesn't count the cost. It's only a whim. It's only a fad. It's only a following as long as it's cool. As long as it's the end thing. It's the seed sprouting in the rocky soil. Discomfort. Duty. That's about the second individual here. He says this rejection says they must first finish their familial obligations. It's impractical to start now. I can't do that right now, God. And that's an attitude of unwillingness to emphasize the preeminent duty. And now this individual, he works too much and he doesn't speak enough. This was Martha's response. It's a response of the will without a relationship. Or as Matthew Henry says, we are tempted to think that our duty to our relations will excuse our duty to Christ. Duty. And the final rejection of disciple-making is found in the last one in discussion. He says, permit me to go say goodbye. And this final attitude is is one which fails to recognize the urgency of the need. It's urgent. Let me do just, just one more thing. 
Let me go sit down and have one more talk. It's actually a shirking of work without the heart. It's a response of a false relationship without the will. So as we close this series, may you and I not embody this failure to follow, but rather recognize that being a disciple means to be dedicated to making disciples. Let's read one more time our text and we'll close. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.